Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. May 6 marks David Robertson's last day as music director of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, a position he has held for 13 years. He'll conduct the symphony three more times before beginning a new chapter in the world of symphonic music and will continue as a frequent guest conductor and will also teach at Juilliard. I sat down with Robertson earlier this week for what amounted to an exit interview and asked why he's exiting. Well, you know that there's a season for all things, and and so this is the this is the one for that, I guess. What do you think you're going to miss about this town? Oh, all sorts of things. I mean, the the first thing I will miss is actually the connection with the musicians, and through that, with the public. Mm-hmm. You know, as I have uh, said a couple of times this season, that when I first came um, to St. Louis and I was giving the pre-concert talks. I was looking out at a group of faces that were pleasant, but I didn't know any of them. And now, uh, you know, there there are regulars in there who I worry about if they're not at the concert. <laughs> are they okay? Is everything mm-hmm. all right? You know, it's it's very funny to have people who at, at the beginning are are just people turn into friends. But that's the nature of a longer-term commitment. Do you think, in looking back, and this is almost an unfair question, perhaps it is, but is there a memorable moment? Is there something that's going to stand out? When you think back on your time in St. Louis, you'll think of that. You know, the thing is that there are, there are so many memorable moments, yeah. is the thing. And so it, it is better described almost in topographical terms, the way that you would a mountain range, where there are indeed certain peaks that are higher than than others. But if you look at something like the Rockies or the Alps, it's not merely the the height of a mountain that distinguishes it. It's all sorts of different extraordinary things that contribute to its beauty. And so, you know, yes, there is the, you know, probably one of the musical pinnacles of my life was the performance both here in St. Louis and then at Carnegie Hall of the opera by Benjamin Britten, Peter Grimes, Mm -hmm. on the 100th anniversary of his birth, which was just staggering. And those are the moments of which there have been too many to mention where you have the sensation, and, you know, sports people talk about this of being in the zone, where all that exists is the thing that you're doing and much of what we think of as the complex interaction and messy things that make us up when we become self-conscious or aware of ourselves, all of that disappears and you become, in a sense, pure being. And in that moment, your pure being is translated into music. And I have had that more with this orchestra than with any other group. Mm. And The funny thing is that that was a kind of chemical or maybe alchemical combination the very first time I worked with them from the very first rehearsal. And, it, you know, that was back in January 1999, and it hasn't changed. 2002 was another big year for you. As I understand it, you came in in 2002 and at the 11th hour to substitute for Hans Vonk when he was ill. Well, that's the thing is that Maestro Vonk had a tour coming up of various cities in Missouri and then going to Carnegie Hall. And I happened to be free that week, but I had not seen the orchestra in three years and three weeks. And here I was going to have a three-hour rehearsal in Carnegie Hall, and that was going to be my reintroduction to the orchestra on a program that we had not done together. And the total amount of time I had been in the presence of the orchestra 
was five days beforehand. So it was not as though I knew this orchestra well. But at the same time, I couldn't leave them in the lurch. And so I said, sure, I'll do this. And what was amazing was that even before we got on stage, when I was seeing people walking in the hallways without their instruments, I remembered what they played and remembered this connection. And that's a really strange thing that where where the communication is so deep on a really elemental level that the whole notion of the time-space continuum, you know, this mm-hmm. happened here and this happened here, suddenly just collapses and it's all in the now. It's really fascinating. We've talked about this before, but I'll ask it again for folks who, who haven't heard. How well do you have to know an orchestra? The, the musicians are professional, highly professional. Mm-hmm. The reading, you know, the notes of the music, the yeah. same notes that you're reading, lift up the baton and say, go to it, guys. You know, it's an interesting thing because it's it's all about the actual, the continuous interaction. There's a continuous feedback loop between what you do and what the orchestra is doing. And I think the misnomer about directing an orchestra is that you somehow direct them in the same way that a policeman or policewoman would direct traffic. Mm-hmm. I tell you to go there and that's where you have to go. It's a very different thing. It's much more like the director in in theater where the actors and actresses are saying their lines and moving on stage in ways that are already producing so much of the inspirational material. And the director ends up channeling things because they're outside of the actual act of making things. So the director can say, if you turn a little bit later, that gesture that you're doing will have a greater impact, which the actor can't see because they're in their own body. And to some extent, that's my role with the the really great perk that I'm actually up there doing this in real time. And so if somebody has a fabulous solo and they want to take a little bit more time, I'm the sort of center of the network that can send out the information of Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a little bit more time on the third beat because of this incredible note that you hear. And so everyone does this as a unit. And that's something that is based on trust. And to come to your original question, that trust can be established relatively quickly, but it needs to be there at the basis. And if you go to a group that you haven't worked with before in the same way that you have a conversation Mm -hmm. with someone you've just met, you're a little bit careful at the beginning of what topics you can broach and and where you can go. And so the interesting thing, I think, for a musician of any sort is to have the longer-term connection, the knowledge. This is why constituted orchestras, so a group Mm -hmm. like ours where the players have been playing together um, in certain cases for decades is a better situation than a group of really fine players that you just hire ad hoc mm-hmm. and put together as a as an orchestra because there isn't that same sort of sense of comradeship and trust. What do you think you brought to this orchestra and how or did it change over the last 13 years? That's really hard for me to say. I think one of the things that I am pleased with is both the breadth of repertoire that the orchestra has, the ability that they already possessed but that has been further developed of being able to really 
just incarnate the quality of the music that I or any you know, guest conductor, whatever he or she might bring, and what they ask of the orchestra so that it's incredibly flexible and it is like a great actor or actress that if they're doing Greek drama one day and they're doing you know, restoration comedy the next and then they're doing um, a, the most recent you know, experimental drama the day after that, mm-hmm. all of it is, is done at an amazingly high level. And so that's, that's one of the things. And then I guess just the sense of empowering the musicians that their individual contribution – is what makes the personality of the orchestra. And that means that you create a situation in which each instrumentalist doesn't feel they need to somehow iron out their musical ideas and have them all pressed and and flat before they come in, but rather brings in their particular take or viewpoint on a solo or a way of playing a phrase. And that that can, in fact generate a sort of a global change in how the whole music process is is going. We've asked uh, some of our listeners to kind of weigh in on your time here and give their response and reaction to you. And in line with what we're just talking about here, we have one that uh, gentleman not, did not leave his name, but is he is a subscriber to the uh, symphony orchestra. And uh, he talks about one of the things that you brought to the stage, and that was humor. I'm a resident of St. Louis. I've attended the symphony many times. I go to the coffee concerts on Friday mornings about once a month. I just want to say about David Robertson, best thing about him, of course, he's an excellent musician, excellent rapport with the orchestra, but the best thing is that he's got a wonderful sense of humor, and he shows it, and people enjoy that, and he's not a stuffed shirt in the least. That's an anonymous caller talking about our guest, David Robertson. Uh, humor is important. I mean, everyone talks about your sense of humor. It is, you know, and you got to make sure that when you go to the cleaners, you say, please, no starch, you know, <laughs> because otherwise your shirt begins to be stuffed. I mean, I think the, the thing that's fun is in a live event, you're all really sort of in it together and it's happening in, in real time. And so if something is humorous, um, I think that that's a great way to kind of sometimes – just unite everybody. I mean, when when we're all laughing, we're all, you know, enjoying the same things. I get the impression that's important for you in a lot of ways. Some people think that symphonic music is elitist, opera is elitist, and really for a different class. My impression of you is that you're reaching out to grab everybody. You know, it's, I mean, everybody's moving through life in their own pace, and you all find out things at different times, you know. Everybody learns history in a different way. And I think that's fine. And so the point is that at one point, when you're a child, you think of reading as very elite. And you have to ask these big, giant adults to come and read you your favorite book because you can't read it yourself. And then all of a sudden, that notion of elite completely falls by the wayside because you think of that as a, a completely normal thing. And if you look at the you know the period of the last 120 years, I think the notion that reading would be something that is elite has fallen completely mm-hmm. by the wayside. At the same time, I think that elite has had this sort of bad connotation connected up with it. And I, I think it's dangerous. There are all sorts of different ways to enter into a dialogue with various aspects of culture. And in musical culture, the thing that 
what is generally called classical music represents is something that has to do with paying attention while listening. And it's not that other musics don't have this, but classical music actually rewards that close listening in a way that some other musics are not asking for. And it's not that all music isn't pleasurable, but there are things to be gained sometimes from the quiet that one often feels is connected up with classical music, the normal lack of amplification, for example. So the music can at times be very loud, but that's generated acoustically through a large number of people or through particular instruments, but then it will also be at times very soft. And if you look at much of the music that is produced commercially for consumption, I would almost say, the notion of it is that you have to compress everything so that it will always be loud enough that you can hear it even in the softer passages. So I'm not sure that you need a particular kind of educational, social, economic background to enjoy anything in what we call classical music. So I like the fact that people can come in and have very different viewpoints because the things that you learn about and the things that you experience are constantly opening up. And it's that aspect that I think is is a mistake if people say, well, this isn't for me because it's it's you know it's snobby and well when i that. speak of you reaching out i think of some of the programming even recent well the, and one of your final concerts is with Wynton Marsalis sure. since that's a little different you've done tributes to prince and you've yeah. done things with movies yeah. that's different and that yeah. is, seems to me to be reaching out for a different kind of audience to expose people to it and once you have them in the tent then you've got them perhaps well i think the thing that you know that happens and we did this one when, when i first started bringing in films with live accompaniment. Yeah. And we were doing Chaplin, but we did a number of things where a couple of times I said to the audience, you realize that the sound you're hearing from the orchestra is purely the sound of these acoustic mm-hmm. instruments in the hall. There are no loudspeakers. This is not like a normal movie mm-hmm. theater. And in fact, that sense of, oh my gosh, this is the sound of this is so beautiful is really a, a sort of a shock to a lot of people and a revelation. And that's, I think, the the main thing that we are trying to communicate. And that's aside from whatever particular style, whether it's Baroque or whether it's Nelly or whether it's, you know, jazzy or whether it's more classical or whether it's more Hollywood-inflected, um, it's all music. And the fascinating thing about this kind of experience is that the more that you give yourself to it with your full attention, the more you gain in joy. Years ago, I did an interview with Van Cliburn. Mm. And I asked him at the end of the interview, it became the end of the interview, I asked him, I said, do you ever just sit down by yourself and maybe knock off a little jazz? He put his finger, long finger, on my microphone, got up and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he would have nothing to do with that. And you know, that's so kind of left the bed. Funny. Yeah. It's I mean it's and it is one of these things. I think part of that is generational. I remember when I was first here in nineteen ninety nine, I was staying in Clayton. That's where they put me up in. I had no idea of any hotels and that's where the orchestra put me up and it was very nice and we were riding in and I saw a sign 
on the way down of what I now know is the Forest Park Parkway mm-hmm. that, you know, said this way to Blueberry Hill. And I went, oh, my God, is that the – is that – That's not what- you know, the Blueberry Hill and the guy said – driving the car said, yeah. And it was – I was so pumped, uh-huh. you know, and to realize that I live downtown. And so for the past, um, what, 13 years, I guess, 13, 14 years, I have driven past a house that Scott Joplin lived in every time I'm going to the hall. This is something awesome, you know, and the the whole way in which – a music can somehow become associated with a group. And then the unfortunate aspect of humans reverting to tribalism comes in. And and then people define themselves by listening to this music or that music. And then they, they war over which one is the better one. And I find all of that really not very interesting and worthwhile of time. Good um, for you. Because it's just – it's you know we all have the same tones and there are lots of things that are unique about particular types of music and that's wonderful but at the same time i think what's even more wonderful is that this you know musical dna is shared by all of us we'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation with david robertson the music director of the st louis symphony orchestra This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. I'm speaking with St. Louis Symphony Music Director David Robertson, and we continue with another tribute from listener and St. Louis Symphony subscriber Jerry Kleba. As I recall it, the first symphony that David played 13 years ago was a freebie that the orchestra performed to raise money for the victims of Hurricane Katrina. And at intermission time, David said that uh, everybody on stage gets recognition and is in the limelight and gets applause. But the people who are equally important to this endeavor today are people who are stage crew and ushers and parking lot attendants and concession stand workers who volunteer just as the orchestra does but doesn't get the applause. I was very touched by his humility and inclusiveness and wrote him a letter telling him he would fit into St. Louis well because St. Louis is proud to have people like Jack Buck and Bob Costas and Jackie Joyner-Kersey, all who would have said the same thing. So he wrote me a card thanking me, and I've never had a chance to meet him, but I have always appreciated his great charm and wit and self-effacing humor, and he will be dearly missed. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. yeah. No, because it was one of those things that what really impressed me about the the organization when I first came is, you know, here you're getting ready for a music director rollout. This is a big thing, you know, and yeah, it's a sure. lot of and people are going to be coming in for it. And then, you know, life happens and, mm-hmm. and life in the most unfortunate way of Katrina took place. And it was one of those things. It was like watching a slow motion disaster and it got worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were a week away from the actual opening concert. Mm-hmm. 
And there was this, oh, my God, we have to do something. And so, you know, we got everybody together and we got the in unison chorus and the symphony chorus, you know, volunteers who could come and were available. And, you know, the orchestra we managed to put together and, and put together a program with all of that. And, of course, then that doesn't happen without all of these other people. And I wanted to, you know, recognize that because the thing that was fabulous was here we were, you know, coming out of a difficult time ourselves financially. And yet everybody pulled together and we raised quite a substantial amount of money for three charities that were dealing with three specific difficulties down in in the New Orleans area. His point about acknowledging the uh, people behind the scenes is very important too. If you forget them, you're lost. Well, and of course, you know, I come out when everything's ready. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the last person to arrive on stage usually. And so that awareness of just all of the things that have to happen. And, you know, part of this comes from the background. I remember I had a a very successful concert series that I started when I was in Lyon. And it was a a series that did not have subscription, so it was all walk-up. And it it was wonderful. We we would have a completely full hall. 2,200 people would show up for these concerts. And it was great success. And it coincided with the arrival of the Euro. And so... 20 francs mm-hmm. turned out to be something horrible like 5 euros 43 cents. And so what was awful was that here, you know, 2,000 people would arrive at the box office asking for their tickets and the poor sort of people in the box office were having to make change with this strange currency that none of us really were familiar with. So I went down and, and you know, gave them a shout out and, and bought them some champagne afterwards because this, you know, because when you're, when you're the director of a hall, as I was there, not only uh, the music director of the orchestra, you feel responsible for all of these people. And, you know, that was one of the places where I realized, you know, in a, in a visceral way that the group that actually the audience meets are the ushers. Mm -hmm. And so there have been times when I spoke to the ushers and I was delighted when Randy Adams said, you know, we're going to take the ushers and actually just bring them more into the fold because they were a group of wonderful volunteers who were never really, in a sense, part of the orchestra Mm -hmm. and and not invited to things. And so, so, you know, it is that sense of you come in after everything is all done, but therefore you see everybody doing all these things. It's certainly proper and good to acknowledge those folks. Yeah. I'm going to another uh, – this is your buddy, uh, John Adams. Oh, yes. We, we've talked about him a lot and you've mm-hmm. worked with him a lot. Uh, this was recorded, though. This was recorded in March uh, of 2017. It was recorded during intermission during the performance of the gospel according mm. to the other Mary. Here's what uh, John Adams had to say about David Robertson. I think that when David has – graduating, gone on to other things in life, that people will look at his era with the St. Louis Symphony the same way they look at George Zell's with the Cleveland Orchestra. I mean, this orchestra now is really one of the best in the world. And I should know because I I go all over, hear my pieces with some of the world's great orchestras and great conductors. Not bad. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it is true that the orchestra is plays at a level that I, mm-hmm. I just find amazing. I'm very proud of them. Do you feel you are an era? You know, that's hard to say because those things are decided in, in a longer time. But certainly for me, this is an era. I mean, I, the things that I've found with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, I am extremely grateful 
that there has been this opportunity for me to experience these things because I am not expecting to ever see them again mm. in this sort of way. So for me, it's, it's definitely sure, an sure. era. I, I have one more I'll play for you. Uh, this is someone who's performed with you and for you, soprano Christine Brewer. Ah, uh, yes. He gives me permission to be vulnerable. For me, when I hear a performer, I want to see them bearing their souls. But when I work with David, he gives me that permission to, to go to that place that, you know, where you're almost in tears, you know, to go to that place deep down in your heart, in your soul. It's like, you know, having a, the lifeguard at the pool and you know you're not going to drown. Christine Brewer. You know, it reminds me of a, of a jockey on the racetrack. You've got to give the horse its head yeah. and let, and let yeah. the thoroughbreds perform. Well, and that's, you know, that's <clears throat> coming back to what you were saying earlier. That's part of what the whole artistic nature of the direction is, is that if you hear somebody expressing the potential to go to some place, which is amazing, it's your job to provide the structure and the framework for that to happen. And the amazing thing about a live performance is that you never know when that's going to be. Mm -hmm. And if you can grasp those moments, these become the stuff of, you know, legendary performances mm -hmm. and moments that stay with, with people for as long as they're alive. Can you feel it when it's happening? Oh, yeah, completely, yeah. completely. And, and I think everybody else feels that as well. I mean, it's an interesting thing. We're, we're fortunate to be able to play concerts more than once quite often. And there will be times when you have done something and it's wonderful, but the way that you have managed to grasp the audience and, and bring all of these diverse individuals into one whole, surrounded and in a sense embraced by the music, sometimes means that you'll get to a silence and the quality of it is such that you draw it out longer, not because you were planning to, but because that is what feels to be the correct thing that everyone wants. And that is just a magic thing. Our time is winding down. Two other things I wanted to get to. One is many people are calling this the year of the women for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And I noticed in, in looking at some of the numbers that half of the uh, musicians in the orchestra yeah. are female, maybe a little more than half. Yeah, yeah, more than is, half. Is that intentional? No, it's purely having to do with the, the quality of mm -hmm. people who show up at auditions. I think there are a number of things. It's a complex subject that you know needs a discussion all on its own. But essentially, I think what most people may not be aware of is that we have um, several rounds of what we call screened auditions, meaning that all of the jury, which is comprised of musicians from the orchestra and then myself at a certain stage, we listen to every musician where we can't see them. We're very careful with carpets, so we can't tell what kind of shoes they're wearing. Mm -hmm. If there's a question to ask of the candidate, we will ask the personnel manager, who then delivers something. If the candidate wishes to play a passage again or something like this, they will indicate this to the personnel manager. So you have no idea who the person is. And this is one of the things that St. Louis started this kind of way of auditioning, which is wonderful because it means that you're really just judging on what the capabilities of the person are. 
And sometimes you will have someone who has this absolutely enormous, huge tone on their instrument and they get into the finals where then the usually the screen comes down and your sense of associating a large, big sound with a person who is physically large is a prejudice that then is suddenly turned on its head when the person who comes out who played with that huge tone is someone who is diminutive and not large mm-hmm. in size. But that's the sort of thing that's really important. And what I think it proves is the qualities that human beings have should not be circumscribed mm. by any sense of what our natural prejudices may have put in place depending on whichever culture we have been educated in. And I think that's one of the really powerful things that music can do because it does in fact allow a kind of meritocracy at that level which is very heartening for people. From the audience perspective, it's very nice to see. Yeah. Yeah, I should say. One final question. It's an obvious one. Uh, We've talked about the David Robertson era. What would you hope your legacy would be in St. Louis when you're no longer here? Oh, well, you know, it's an interesting thing. When you're music director, you you make decisions about what you're rehearsing the next day or, or how long you're going to do this particular piece. And so those are small decisions. And then you have larger decisions such as what pieces you might program in the following season. But the real legacy, I think, are all of the people that have come in while you've been there. Because you're, you're the person who is designated by the board to be the artistic conscience and say you are hired or after an audition and a trial process, you know it's not the right fit. I'm very sorry, but we've had a nice time with you, but you're not the right fit for the orchestra. So it's the actual personnel in the orchestra who are, in a sense, your living legacy when you've been with an orchestra. And there have been a lot of people that we have put in who have really you know, contributed just amazing things, and they'll continue to do that. David Robertson, thank you so much for spending this time with us, and best of luck and success to you as you pursue whatever it is you're going to be pursuing. Thank you so much, Tom. That was St. Louis Symphony Orchestra music director David Robertson. He will conduct three more sets of concerts in Powell Hall before his tenure ends, and you can hear the Saturday night concert of each program on 90.7 KWMU or on our website. Information on these concerts and how to leave a testimonial about Robertson is available at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. Also, join me Tuesday evening at Left Bank Books when I will talk with St. Louis-based journalist and author Sarah Kenzior about her book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. That's a free event Tuesday evening at 7 at Left Bank Books on Euclid in the Central West End. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Alex Hoyer, Evie Hemphill, and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr and Charlie McDonald. The executive producer is Mary Edwards. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.